Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Digital Health Unplugged. I know I say this a lot, but I'm really, really excited about this episode. We had so much response to our call for panelists, and I was so happy with how keen everyone was to join. So that explains my excitement there. As you already know, June is Pride Month. So for our last episode of the month, we're going to be taking a look at queer tech. Now, this might not be a term that you've heard before, so we're really hoping it sticks with you after this episode. Queer tech is essentially technology that is designed to be inclusive of the LGBT plus community. And it's not just referring to new technology either. It also encompasses technology that's been around for a while, but perhaps needs to be updated to be a bit more inclusive. By viewing health technology through the rainbow lens, we can create a health and care system that's inclusive and ultimately challenges homophobia and transphobia in the NHS. And what is not to love about that? Joining me today to talk about queer tech and how the NHS and innovators can be more inclusive of the LGBT plus community are Brett Hatfield, NHS navigator at the accelerator digitalhealth.london, Matthew Watt, the senior delivery manager of in- innovation sorry, at NHSX, Lizzie Streeter, national LGBT program manager at NHS England, and Paul Gavin, deputy director of health inequalities at NHS England. Welcome to Digital Health Unplugged, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, To begin with, can I ask each of you just to briefly introduce yourselves and the work you're doing around inclusivity? Um, Matt, I know that you're doing a little bit of work around this. Would you mind going first? Yeah, good morning. I'm Matt from NHSX. Um, I am in the process of mobilizing a project around digital equalities. Uh, The intention is to look at um, what are the issues within clinical pathways and work with people actually doing this work and learn from them and to try and answer some basic questions. What are the issues? How do you go about addressing those? What are the blockers at an ICS or CCG level that make uh, the work you're doing easier or potentially harder? And in some way, can we work with these people to share the learning with others? Brett, I'll hand over to you next. Thanks, Andrea. Yeah, I work on, as you mentioned, the digitalhealth.london accelerator program. And essentially what we do is we identify 20 high impact digital health innovators every year and support them in breaking them into the NHS. And essentially a lot of what we do is focusing on supporting companies um, with meeting the NHS need and refining their products. And a big part of that is making sure that they have inclusive technology and making sure that they, they meet NHS needs in that way. And a big part of my focus is really helping to make sure that technology is LGBT inclusive and incorporates those um, elements to make sure that they cater to the LGBT community from that health tech perspective. And Lizzie and Paul, who would like to go first there? I can go. Um, I'm Lizzie. My pronouns are she, her. And I work in the LGBT health team at NHS England um, with Dr. Michael Brady, who's the National Advisor for LGBT Health. Uh, We've been in post since 2019 um, as a result of the government's LGBT Action Plan. Um, We are hosted at NHS England And we're working on a range of different initiatives to raise awareness around LGBT health inequalities, um, which includes, um, as I'm sure you can imagine, digital and tech. I have the the privilege of being part of the team led by Bola Walabi, who has been asked to take 
into account the improvement for all of health inequalities across England. Um, and I think for this call, I am joining Matt in his work in the digital space to try and find uh, a way to improve what is one of our key areas of improvement, and particularly in relation to inclusion. Um, and, and that's what I, I think I can bring to this call today. Amazing. Well, you're all doing some really great work, um, and I'm sure we'll be, get to talk about that a little bit more. Um, but Brett, first of all, I just wanted to speak to you about a blog that you wrote for us and also for digitalhealth.london on Queertech. Um, so you can definitely explain it a lot better than I can. Would you mind just explaining a little bit more around what it is and why it's needed? Yeah, absolutely. So I think queer tech is a combination of different things. I think we're seeing new technology emerge that's exclusively for the LGBT community. So there's smartphone apps that provide emotional support to LGBT patients through a therapy program, and it's tailored towards the LGBT community. But we're also seeing queer tech, which is existing technology that's just designed for everyone, including the LGBT community. So it, it's inclusive of um, the needs of, the L of LGBT people um, and includes elements such as gender neutral language. Um, it includes elements such as non-binary options for, for gender. Um, and just acknowledging that technology is also designed, that, that may be designed for women, may also have benefits for trans men and non-binary individuals and vice versa. So really queer tech is a combination of um, tech that's exclusively for the uh, community, but also tech that's just inclusive of the community as well. And I think that's why it's so important to have these conversations to make sure that technology that we develop, um, even though it may not be tailored or directed towards the LGBT community is still inclusive of, of, of those individuals. And I guess this is kind of a question for, for everyone really. Um, does queer tech differ from technology that we already have in place or is it more about also making sure that the technology we are already using becomes a bit more inclusive and if that's the case how do we do it? I feel like if you make technology more inclusive for LGBT people you actually make it more inclusive for everybody. Um, I think you know we have this problem that not only in tech but kind of health services are designed through a heteronormative, cis-normative lens. Um, and so anybody who doesn't fall into that binary idea, it, you know, we, we then have to develop workarounds and add-ons. Why not start with the most marginalised groups of people and inevitably you'll find it, you know, probably more inclusive for for everyone. I think that's a really good, good point that Lizzie made there, that actually this is in some extent, a way to look at the same things, but with yeah. a deeper understanding, a more holistic understanding. Um, it reminds me of that parable of people looking at, at an elephant and someone looks at its leg and it sees a tree, someone sees its tail and it sees a, a snake. And actually, once you start to widen your eyes to the issues and get a better understanding of what do these things mean and what do they include, you can then start to design services technology processes in a more holistic and inclusive manner. So I want to talk a little bit about how technology can be discriminatory now, because I think it's very easy for people to see technology as a tool. Um, it's not exactly like it can say something offensive or yell an insult at someone. So I think people just assume that it's not biased, but that doesn't mean that it's not inclusive. Um, so can you guys give me some examples of how technology can be discriminatory in this way? 
I actually have um, uh, have an example. I, I think, as as Lizzie mentioned, she hit the nail on the head when um, you mentioned that it's often technology can be looked at through sometimes a heteronormative lens. Um, and so what we find then is technology that's designed and developed by humans, naturally the unconscious bias that exists in those humans will sort of bleed into technology, and, and which is why when we do develop this, this work as part of the NHS, we really need to make sure engagement is just such a key part of everything we do to meet those needs and to try to, and as Matt mentioned as well, some things you might not know, you just don't know what you don't know. And unless you ask the community, then um, new things might transpire as a result of that. So there was one um, example of in um, Sussex when online consultations were rolled out with GP practices and uh, when um, what we found in um, a patient survey was that LGBT individuals were less likely to use online consultations to interact with their GP practice. And the reason for that was because they didn't, they couldn't choose which GP would be reviewing their online form and so didn't know if that GP would be inclusive of their needs, would be, um, would be LGBT friendly. And so they were less likely to submit an online form because they didn't know who they were going to be interacting with. Um, and that's, I think, really common in a lot of technology. It doesn't provide those options to be inclusive of, our, of, of LGBT needs. Yeah. And as you sort of said earlier, um, I think, you know, it's designed on your own experience, isn't it? Like my experience is very different to someone else's, someone else's experience. Um, so that's obviously where the consultation and that, you know, discussion comes in. Um, so I guess that kind of leads me on to asking how do we have those discussions and what do you know NHS commissioners and you know NHS leaders um, or innovators everyone that's basically in charge of creating these technologies what do they need to be doing to make sure that they're inclusive? Maybe I can come in on that one it's Paul so I, I think that's one of my key um, lines of development you know is making sure that at the design stage of strategies at the design stage of projects and programs that we don't assume anything and that we look to bring in lived experience across the piece and we have to bake that in and we have to really um, show through our actions that we are listening and it's not a token effort. Now that's something that we recognise um, really well I think within the programme and it's things that we've done in programmes in the past. Can we improve? Definitely but it's time to stop assuming it's time to stop thinking we know what communities need and it's time to start bringing them in earlier I would say from my perspective. Matt I'm sure you've got something to say from NHSX's side. So I think um, to quote Rachel Dunscombe this is all about people first not technology. Mm. Um, technology on its own has no in intentions you know? it doesn't have any free will and doesn't intend to discriminate or do something in a certain way uh, I think the key thing is that our understanding of the use of technology, how it can inform processes, how it can make things faster, has been vastly improved over the years. And if you look at the traditional IT role and it's in the early 90s to have things on our, there are some vast improvements in some ways and probably less so in others. But I, the key thing is here to really understand why do these things fail? Because they've been designed that way. And it's there's many reasons for that. There are types of hinds. It could be a lack of understanding about the people involved. It could be there's a lot of a lack of thought. It could be just a poor product. Um, so these things get designed in a certain way. And as Paul mentioned, it's about having a better understanding of the communities that are involved, what the technology is doing, 
but also what the up and downstream impacts are of that technology. Who, who does it interface with? An individual's health needs don't just exist in a bubble. They exist in a, across a myriad of different uh, spectrums, including their home life, their personal life, school, education, their work. You often have multiple needs, health needs. So a bit of technology that does one thing needs to have a sort of a, a better understanding of the impact. Well, what are the other needs across the different health services there? Mm. Lizzie, I'm going to take a wild guess and assume that a lot of your work with the LGBT network also crosses over with a lot of the work that Matt and Paul have just spoken about. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I could probably be here all day talking about the current issues for LGBT people <laughs> um, and in particular trans people around tech, but I I totally see what Matt means. It's not that you know, technology in itself <laughs> wants to be discriminatory, but it's about what we, we put in. Um, just some examples of that um, around monitoring and data collection. So, you know, a really stark example is that because we did not collect data on LGBT people, so sexual orientation or trans status um, during COVID, we don't know anything about um, LGBT people's experiences um, of being hospitalized with COVID. That's something that you know, we ought to be looking at in terms of what are we routinely collecting it, um, in relation to data, not only from a, a clinical perspective and so that we can understand people's needs better, but also so that they just have a better experience, that they aren't misgendered or that their partner isn't mistaken for their sister or, you know, and particularly in, and we do hear examples of that in, um, you know, palliative care and scenarios where it's so important that, um people are having a, a personal experience. Another example I wanted to talk about was around things like the SNOMED coding. So I, I think some of those were designed many years ago when we might have used certain language, language changes. So we really need to be conscious of, of updating, um, you know, old fashioned pathologizing um, terminology around LGBT identities um, to keep up with you know, new terminology. Um, and then, can I say one more? Of course <laughs> um, you can. Well, just around um, the challenges for trans people um, in terms of changing their gender on their NHS record. Our NHS numbers relate, um, are coded in a way um, for men and women differently. And so if you transition, you get a brand new NHS number. But there's um, a problem for many people at the moment in terms of their old medical information kind of being lost somewhere along the way um, and you know that then obviously has kind of clinical impl implications and, and on that male-female um, issue many of our services so for example 111 online um, you immediately have to from the outset this enter what is your gender male or female and that takes you down a different pathway, obviously, in terms of the types of questions you're going to be asked. So immediately, if you're a non-binary person or a trans woman, that creates barriers. What Lizzie just said there struck a, a note in my mind that healthcare and the health system, it's a very personal and social process. You know, it's very personal to what you're going through. Your relationships with the people around you, again, are very personal. Taking your car to the garage, is very transactional. Your car engine doesn't care what it is or what's, what's going on. Um, and I think that's why 
having a better understanding of these issues, raising awareness, doing things like this, and even just having a better sort of grasp of, well, what can we do? It's so important because healthcare matters. Healthcare is a, it's a caring, caring subject. It's not a transactional thing. And I think there's, you know, once we start to talk about this, the more people start to think, actually, I never thought of that. Or, actually, yes, this is an issue. The more people will take an interest and start to do something about it. Mm. Yeah, of course. Like healthcare is extremely personal. And I think that's, hopefully that's struck a chord with quite a few of our listeners. Um, but Brett, while Lizzie was talking, I also noticed you were nodding away and agreeing with a lot of things. So I wanted to ask if you had anything to add to that. No, I just absolutely agree. I think a lot of um, what Lizzie and Matt touched upon are just can very easily be translated to um, health technology. And, and again, going back to that point around when we're designing the technology for, for the patients that we serve as part of the NHS, if we're not engaging with um, groups, if we're not engaging with um, LGBT individuals across the entire rainbow spectrum, then we're not going to know exactly what their needs are in that sort of in that technology. And again, going back to that example of online mm -hmm. consultations, I just um, I, I feel like when we did, did some post um, implementation engagement, things came out of that that um, we didn't realize from all different vulnerable groups, which, again, is why we cannot stress enough why engagement is just so essential with those vulnerable groups, with the LGBT community, just because it opens your eyes, for myself included, because of course I come from, I'm a white gay male and I don't understand the needs of people in, um, in, in uh, with different demographics as well. So it's really important just so, because no one project manager can know absolutely everything. It's important to do that engagement work work with your public involvement team, make sure you capture as many needs as possible because that it, it really does make a huge difference when you end up rolling out that technology to the community. So I think we may have touched on this slightly in some of the answers already, but I did wanna really focus on the risks of health tech not being inclusive um, because it's not just a case of making people feel uncomfortable and you know them not feeling included. There, is, there are actual health risks involved in this. Um, so I wanted to ask uh, maybe Matthew or Paul um, what the risks are here of not being inclusive with technology. The most risk ultimately is risks to life. You know, this this centres on accessing healthcare at the right time to meet the right need, and I think that uh, the risks are that if we don't have services that meet the community of the LGBTQ plus community. Then effectively people will die. And that sounds as if we're sensationalizing it, but the point is 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 well made increase um, repeatedly. And, and we are hearing that, and that's the the, the the main statistic that we're trying to affect to reduce unnecessary deaths through health inequalities. And I'm gonna stop there because I don't want to really go much further on that. I think the point stands alone. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so there is a real risk here, not just in terms of how people use the service but how they perceive a service and how they perceive those individuals within that service and then those perceptions then spread to other people so if someone is marginalized when they try to book a gp appointment or they feel concerned that actually the person seeing them may discriminate or may not listen to them now that in itself is pretty bad but actually then that person then tells a few of their friends that this person does that, they then spread out. And what you end up having is a bit of a butterfly effect that there's a wave of negativity, misconceptions, misperceptions, just a whole bunch of negative stuff that ends up happening. 
And that that could then spread to the children. You know, it, it, it spreads wider. So I guess something which on the surface could seem potentially quite small is I don't want to see that person because they are they could discriminate against you or know that they're you know a certain attitude can quite quickly become something that spreads and becomes a bit further reaching and a lot more more um, damaging I guess yeah yeah of course I mean any any barrier that's there accessing healthcare is always going to be a danger isn't it if if I can I was just going to add a point on that as well because I think um uh, un- Stonewall's unhealthy attitudes report came out a couple of years ago and it really detailed some of the experiences that LGBT people faced when interacting with the healthcare system. Um, And I think uh, a lot of this again can be translated to technology, but just to raise one statistic here, one in four LGBT people said that they've experienced lack of understanding of LGBT health needs by healthcare staff. And there's also a whole range of other statistics about how people have um, sort of been encouraged to um, reach out to services that may not be inclusive of their LGBT needs and other elements as well. And I think um, to give give you an example, um, when I was first finding my own sexuality and I went to see a psychologist when I was 18, I remember the first thing, um, the the, the conversation, how it went, the the thing that I took away was he asked me this question, how did I know that I was gay if I hadn't physically been with a woman and that I should try and do this before confirming my sexuality. And I remember coming away from that conversation really scarred because I just felt like that was obviously not the approach that I wanted to take. I didn't feel very comfortable with that. And it was from then I didn't really feel comfortable interacting, well, disclosing my sexuality to healthcare staff for some years, for several years after that. And I think it's experiences like that that are really, really common. Um, and it pushes people away from the healthcare system and try where they try to find support through other means where perhaps they're not so evidence-based. And so which is why it's so important that when we develop technology like online consultations and there's not an option to um, select the GP that you would like to speak with or who you would like to review your online form. It means that you might be less inclined to access that healthcare service and therefore may not um, seek help for a health, a, a particular health need. And so I think there are huge um, implications to not having inclusive technology and inclusive healthcare because it does push people away from the healthcare service. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I also wanted to raise um, here, because I think it's also really important we discuss this on the podcast, that there also are marginalised groups within the LGBT community. Um, you know, for example, BAME people already experience quite a lot of health inequalities uh, in the healthcare system. Um, and those two communities obviously do intersect. So in a sense, there is kind of double the risk of exclusion for some groups. How do we make sure that we are getting inclusion right for them? I mean, I think, as, as Paul mentioned earlier, it's just really important that we engage with those communities. Um, there are, you know, we have to go out and actually seek those groups. Um, and there are organisations such as Rainbow Noir in Manchester, who work specifically with LGBT people of colour, um, doing really, really good work. So I think it's about, you know, asking people getting out there and talking to them. I also wanted to kind of give a mention 
to LGBT networks within the NHS. So I know, for example, the NHS Digital LGBT Staff Network um, are doing really phenomenal work internally um, to push and change those quite rigid systems. So I'll often go to them first um, when we want something changing. So it's it's usually LGBT people um, at the heart of kind of pushing for change. Um, so I think... In part, we've got to think about what kind of society do we want here? What kind of society do we, do we want to live in? Um, once you know, your eyes are open to a whole bunch of issues, you, you know, we think we have a choice, and sometimes we do, but actually, if we do have a choice to do something, then it's almost like an ethical or moral imperative to do something here. Um, we want to set a good example. We actually want to make society better for ourselves, for our children, for our family, for people don't even, even know just across the country and beyond. And I guess if we don't take action, what kind of message is that giving? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, so let's also look at the other side now, because I'm sure that there are some technology companies and organizations that are getting this right and you know really hitting inclusivity where they should be. Um, Brett, I know that you mentioned a few startups in the blogs that you've written. Um, could you maybe expand a bit on why they've, you know, why they've done so well? Yeah, absolutely. There, um, there's one that springs to mind um, called Peppy Health, and essentially they offer um, support in life's biggest moments. Um, they're basically a smartphone application and they provide access to um, professionals in certain areas. So for example, they have a service called Peppy Menopause, and it provides access to expert menopause practitioners for um, individuals using the app. Um, and the reason why I'm flagging this is because I, they've they've done a really um, good job in making sure that their service is available to everyone with ovaries. So they they try to use gender neutral language. They try to avoid saying um, that their service is only for women because they acknowledge that trans men or non-binary individuals may wish to access their service as well. And they really try to make sure that the conversation around menopause is inclusive of all people, not just um, those individuals that, it, that menopause affects as well directly. Um, so I think it's, it's a good example of using gender neutral language, making sure that your, um, that your technology is inclusive of people from all groups and everyone on the gender spectrum. Um, and another example as well is an app called Calda. It's quite, um, uh, they're, they're quite new. They're still developing their smartphone application, but it's, it's a piece of technology that um, they provide weekly group therapy sessions and it's targeted towards the LGBT community. And the reason, one of the reasons it came about was that people's experiences with um, cognitive behavior, behavior therapy um, through mental health support sometimes has a heteronormative lens and what they wanted to do is provide um, therapy sessions with um, I guess that rainbow lens and they wanted to make sure that it was inclusive of the needs of the LGBT community. So those were two really good examples of um, an app designed for the LGBT community and one that is designed for everyone but to, in, in, is inclusive of LGBT needs as well. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned Peppy as well, because um, they were the winner of our Rewired Pitch Fest competition this year. Um, and we've had them on the podcast. And like, I genuinely, the work they're doing is incredible. Um, and I, like, I was, was rooting for them the whole way, even though I'm not supposed to be biased there. Um, but yeah, also, we have not paid Brett to promote them here. Just <laughs> that's just a nice little segue to promote our events. 
Um, Lizzie, I'm sure that some of the work that you're doing kind of ties into this as well. Um, I just wanted to give an example, actually, of a of a recent, quite small, um, well, wasn't small project, but a project that really made a difference um, to trans people. So we had noticed that there was a problem with um, booking coronavirus tests that the system again asked for people's gender unnecessarily um, and that was causing issues and, and local areas were having to create workarounds um, outside of the NHS system. So when it came to the vaccine booking system, a colleague from NHS Digital um, did some um, really great work to, to look at this issue because it turned out that the collection of gender um, was actually not for any clinical or monitoring purpose. It was purely to match a patient to their GP record to make sure they were the right person booking the test and um, vaccine. Sorry. Um, and so Emma Parnell from NHS Digital uh, worked really, really hard to essentially remove that gender category um, uh, from the vaccine booking system, which has made it much easier, particularly for non-binary people, to book their vaccine. Um, it sounds like something quite simple, but as you can imagine, it, it actually was really, really, really complex. And there was a lot of kind of winning of hearts and minds and educating people about, um, you know, ensuring that we only collect the right, the data that we actually need to use. So that was just one example of a kind of quick win, which I hope we'll be able to learn from for, yeah, other systems. Yeah, that sounds like it was a very complicated and difficult piece of work. I know you said it sounds simple, but when you were explaining it, I did not think that sounded simple at all. Um, but yeah, that's amazing work that's being done. Um, so I guess the, the next question I would like to ask you all is what you see for the future? What's the national picture looking like at the moment and where where do you see this going? That's, that's a big question. <laughs> Lizzie, I'll start with you because I know that you're doing so much work around it. I mean, I think... Our team's biggest priority is around data and monitoring. Um, if you don't count us, we don't count. So if, you, if we're not collecting data on LGBT people in the first place, you know, we don't exist in the system um, and we don't know what the health inequalities even are to begin with. So um, our biggest aim at the moment is to really drive sexual orientation monitoring. It's already um, a question that's asked within certain services, so sexual health and mental health, but we want to make it as routine as asking somebody their age or ethnicity um, so that we can actually start to really use that data, not only so that people can have a more personal um, experience, but also because we know that there are clinical implications um, around being LGBT um, and also so that we can kind of use that data from a demographic perspective and and um, you know, help it prioritise our work around LGBT health inequalities. So I think, yeah, monitoring and data is our biggest priority going I really like the, um, if you don't count us, we don't count. I've not heard anyone use that before and I think that's a really important message to be sending across. It really is. I, I was just going to add, I. I um, absolutely agree. I think in terms of the future of queer tech, I think, again, if we could just drill into everyone working in the NHS, the importance of engagement when you're procuring digital solutions and the importance of going to those organizations that specialize in 
LGBT plus health and support like Stonewall or the LGBT Foundation. Um, there's another great organization that I heard of a few weeks ago, ago called the Black Beetle, which supports LGBT individuals of color as well. There are groups out there that want to be heard and they want technology to meet their needs. So they're there, they, they, um, they want to be heard. And I think it's so important that in everyone's engagement as part of any digital transformation project, we engage with all vulnerable groups and other groups as well, and make sure that we really hone in on the needs of um, the LGBT community and make sure that you acknowledge the needs of those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, but also trans and intersex um, and non-binary because those needs are very different and acknowledging that the, the LGBT um, rainbow is, is very big and sometimes those needs can vary. So there's a lot of work to be done in the engagement space, which is why we need to do it as early as possible in any project and do it again and again and again, <laughs> before and after. Yeah, um, every week or every couple of days, there seems to be a new report around health inequalities and digital inequalities coming out. I mean, just this morning, there was a digital board report around what do, you, what do the board need to know there was a call to action by the Kingston Fund last week. There was a University of Manchester report the week before that. There was an allied health practitioner framework for tackling health inequalities. Uh, so th there's something new nearly every single week. And I think, well, they, this suggests a few things. One is that this has been looked at by a number of different people across so many different organizations and industries. What this really indicates though is that each of these reports, they say similar things in some extent and different things in others. So people have a different lens. They have a different way of looking at the problem. And I really think there's some value in somehow bringing all of this together. Um, there's so much variation and variability in services and the experience of someone in one town may be completely different to another. And maybe there is a case to build some kind of standard around this. You know, the five standards there to look at interoperability. Maybe there's some kind of standard that could be done to look at health equality issues and the things that could be done. And somehow to bring together all of this research so we're not reduplicating, we're not starting from scratch again, just to basically help people to demystify what can we do here? You know, what are the options? What's the research showing? Yeah, of course. I think. Um standards are always great and it's it's about listening isn't it that's the one thing I've got from our discussion so far it's just about listening to the needs of everyone um but sadly I've I've looked at the time and we are running out of time for the recording um so just before I wrap it up I have one question for each of you if you could have one wish for queer tech that you knew was guaranteed to come true um what would it be Brett I'll start with you oh where to choose um <laughs> Gosh, I, I think my biggest wish for queer tech is for um, technology to be gender neutral and to not stick to the gender binary. I think we're in an age, we're in an age now where we male and female are two very different ends of the gender spectrum, and there are many individuals who exist in between that spectrum. And I think we really need to do better and more in making sure that our technology is gender neutral and caters to people um, on all sides of that gender spectrum. And I, like the example I gave with Pepe, I think there are so many services for 
um, men that trans women and non-binary individuals will benefit from and vice versa as well. So I feel like if we can drill down on that and make sure that our, uh, we can move away from that gender binary, I think that would be a wonderful future for queer tech. Yeah, it would be. And also the example you gave with Pepe isn't difficult to do. I think a lot of people get, I think it can be overwhelming when you think, oh, mm-hmm. you have to change everything the way we've been doing it, but it's not difficult. Absolutely. It's a very, very simple thing to implement that would make such a huge difference to so many people. And I think that's a really important message that we need to get across as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Lizzie, what about you? Um, I think just it's about involving us from the start. Um I think too often LGBT people and other marginalised groups are an afterthought and then we end up having to make little tweaks and fixes and workarounds. But actually, if you just came to us in the beginning, we probably could have told you that, you know, that might have been an issue. Um, And I know it's really difficult because I'm sure if we had a blank piece of paper, we'd probably design the whole NHS technology system entirely differently to how it is now. And we are working within lots and lots of constraints, but... I think I think that's it. We are here and want to help people, and the LGBT health team is here and want to help people. So um, just just don't make assumptions and talk to us. Yeah, of course. And Matt, thank you. So my wish is quite basic, really. I would just like everyone to have an awareness of this. Um, what are the issues? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my colleagues and and friends, what does it mean for my behaviours and how I design a project? Um, yeah, so just general awareness. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and I think those are three really, really great points to end the podcast on. And I hope that they stick with everyone that's listened to it. Um, but sadly, that is all we've got time for on Digital Health Unplugged. Um, Brett, Matt, Lizzie and Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a great episode. Um, I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have learned a lot. Um, And of course, to all of our listeners, thank you so, so much for tuning in. Please don't forget that Digital Health Unplugged is published fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and the usual podcast platforms. So you can give us a follow on any of those to keep up to date with what we're doing. And of course, if you've got a podcast suggestion, we're always keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcast at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We will catch you in two weeks time. You've been listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes or to keep up to date with what Digital Health Unplugged is doing, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast channel. If you want to know more about Digital Health, our news and events, you can head on over to digitalhealth.net.